This podcast is brought to you by our headline partner, Opus Talent Solutions, supporting TEDx Bristol's commitment to nurture diverse and fresh talent. I just found purpose. Mm. I had a focus. I had something that I could be doing for me. It was up to me how well I did, not up to anybody else. A year later, I was national champ. From TEDx Bristol, this is Reflect, Rethink, Reboot, a podcast about not just surviving, but thriving in uncertain times. I'm Becky Walsh, and in this series of three podcast specials, I'm going to be meeting some of the speakers who'll be taking to the stage at this year's TEDx Bristol on the 17th of November at Bristol Old Vic. We wanted to share their story and inspiration behind their idea, as well as giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the journey for a TEDx speaker to that famous red circle on the stage. I joined TEDx Bristol in 2017, and it's my role as part of the speaker team to help coach the speakers, helping them turn their already fascinating idea into an inspiring talk fit to share with the world via the TED community. As well as chatting to the speakers, and we'll meet our first one in just a moment, I wanted to give you a bit of a peek behind the curtain at TEDx Bristol to look at how our speakers got here. Firstly, what makes an idea worth sharing? Let's make the teaching of listening skills a national priority. In recent years, body confidence has made a massive surge. I think we need to rethink that. This is about understanding the interconnectedness of all the minority groups. As a society, we finally go, enough is enough, I want my privacy back. I don't want you to think I'm pretty. I want you to think I'm pretty freaking awesome. This year, we were just blown away by not just the number of people who applied, but by the sheer breadth of ideas that people wanted to share. Ideas and stories that made us think, laugh, cry and feel inspired in equal measure. But what we're looking for isn't just great ideas. We're looking for stories that challenge perceptions, spark progress and create possibility. And those criteria were especially important this year as our theme Reflect, Rethink, Reboot is all about different perspectives. Rethinking the things we might take for granted and looking at how we can keep on a positive course in an ever-changing world. All in all, it's about positive, tangible action. So on to the first of our speakers we're going to meet. Chloe Bull Hopkins is a freelance journalist, archery champion and student. She's also a wheelchair user on a mission to find out why such a large sector of society is still invisible to retailers. There are almost 14 million disabled people in the UK, but the fashion industry seems to be ignoring them. Inspired by this, in July 2018, Chloe pioneered a collaboration with ASOS, who supply kit for Great Britain's Paralympians to create a jumpsuit that met the need for comfortable, practical, fashionable active wear. The campaign took the fashion and media world by storm, with Vogue, Grazia, Elle and New York magazine taking up the story. But a year on, nothing more has been done. Chloe's talk at TEDx Bristol 2019 is called Why Isn't Fashion Inclusive of Disabled People? And her mission is to create clothes that help people like her feel comfortable, fashionable, whether on feet or on wheels. Hello, Chloe. Hiya. So if you don't mind, can you explain a little bit about your condition and how it makes maybe some of the everyday tasks a bit more of a challenge for you? Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of two prongs to this. So when I was born... I was told I had a condition, well, my mum was told I had a condition called arthrogryposis, which basically meant that I had no hips and my feet were bent up to my shins. 
So at, at 18 months, they operated. And that those operations were kind of done quite a lot as I grew up. I had a lot of surgeries um, to fix things. And then at four years old, because my muscles weren't repairing after these operations, they did a biopsy and that came back with a form of muscular dystrophy called nemaline myopathy, which basically means that my muscles aren't as strong as the next person's would be. And it's hard to tell when they may or may not get weaker, but it's a bit of a vicious circle. So when I've had operations and they've cut through muscles, it's made them weaker and they just, they don't repair after that point. So it's a fine line, really. What about your sporting achievements? <laughs> How did that come about? Because a lot of people would just avoid the things that they would find difficult. You throw yourself into them. Why you know that? what? The first time I did it kicking and screaming, not quite literally, um, but it was because the sports thing started because I was having a really bad time at school with bullying. Ah. Um, always comes back to bullying, doesn't it? Um, because people didn't understand my condition. Um, I was having a really hard time at school. I wanted to leave. Um, and then one of the teaching assistants said, uh, there's a sports day coming up. It's for wheelchair tennis. We're going. And I don't know how it happened, but literally within that space of probably not even eight hours, I just found purpose. I guess yeah. we could call it. Mm. I had a focus. I had something that I could be doing for me. Like, it was up to me how well I did. Yeah. Not up to anybody else. And that just kept going, really. And it was from that moment when I went back into school and I said to one of the teachers, I'm going to be doing tennis now in my PE lessons. And he went, well, that's fine, but can't really do it. And you, you won't really get very far. And that was the first time in my life where I was like, mm, I'll show you wrong. <laughs> And I did, because a year later I was national champ, sat there at sports night, and she she couldn't even look at me. Oh. And now to the point, obviously, where I could go back in and say, well, actually, I've got a bronze medal at the European Championships from archery, because that's where I went to. Yeah. It, it just goes to prove, doesn't it? I think that one day where someone went, no, come on, let's go and do that, just to yeah. get you out of an environment where I was having a hell of a time, now is what drives me to go, hmm, if someone goes, you can't do that, I go, uh, yes, I can. My... Family always spent a long time trying to tell me, like growing up, they, you know, you can do that. There's different ways and you don't understand it when you're little. And then it just took that one, literally that one day to then go, oh, oh, I can. And I think I needed that moment myself to realise it. And then, yeah, now, God, I don't think I could, no one could stop me from doing anything now, really. So you brushed over those sporting achievements like they meant nothing. Please <laughs> underline them. Tell us about their sporting achievements. Really put the emphasis on them. It's been a real whirlwind, really, because once I got into sport, I wanted to try it all. So it started with the tennis, did a few sort of national championship competitions with that. Um, and then I started doing basketball um, with the men's team. Um, I could never shoot the hoops, but I was always the one to get from A to B the quickest. And then trying to juggle the two of those, I got into um, athletics, actually. After a year of being asked by one of the local coaches, come on, give it a go, give it a go. I gave in. I was like, all right, fine. And there was something about getting into one of the racing chairs, um, the freedom mm. I had, like just uh, I was in that chair, I was off around the track. Um, and that happened really quickly. So within about a month that I was at the National Champs um, getting medals for like Southwest in region. In a month? Yeah, I can't, oh, I, honestly. God. It was ridiculous. And then London was looming the next year. So yeah. the talk was on about the Paralympic Games. But uh, well, I guess we could call it fate had other kind of ideas because the start of 2012 I ended up in intensive care um pretty unwell um due to my condition so this is one of the side effects of the muscular dystrophy if you get kind of a cold it very quickly can become a lot worse I, I woke up on Friday the 13th of all days and they're like good news you're alive 
Mm. Bad news, you've got glandular fever, so you oh. won't be doing anything for a while. Yeah. So that meant homeschool for my GCSEs, um, but it also then meant the Paralympics that year were out of the equation, and doing athletics again was out of the equation. Um, because of what had happened to my body in that time I was unwell, if I'd got back in a racing chair, I would have made myself pretty severely disabled, and I wasn't going to yeah. do that to myself. So that's when I had to rethink what sport I could do. And it was actually... At Stoke Mandeville, we went up to a training camp up there. That's where the Paralympics began. So my friends were trying out archery and they are like, come and give it a go. And there was something in the fact that you had to try and beat yourself that I really liked. Mm. And I think that came from the can-do attitude that I kind of developed through all the other sports. Um, and again, it happened very quickly. Like 2013, I started. By the end of the year, I was announced in the Paralympic Potential Training Programme. Wow. I was competing the next year in Thailand Czech Republic and it was Switzerland where the European Championships were and I got a bronze in the like the individual and I was on track again for Rio <laughs> until a shoulder injury mm. um so that's the only reason why I can't sit here and say I am a Paralympian and um, was because of that injury but that doesn't mean that one day I won't say it I hope I can't see why you weren't Chloe I think you could do absolutely anything do you think you know so that the sport had a definite impact on this can-do attitude about clothing yeah, I think so, because it all just becomes part of your nature. Um, and nothing puts more fire in my belly than knowing that I'm not just doing it for me. Yeah. Um, a lot of things I've done in terms of like charity stuff has been because I know it's bigger than me. Um, and I quite like the pressure that puts on it. So in regards to your talk, can you paint us a bit of a picture about how if you were shopping for an outfit, which might be, you know, fairly straightforward for somebody who's not disabled, how is it for you? It can be a nightmare, like not only the clothes itself, but the experience of going shopping. Um, it, it can be reaching it. So if I go on my own, if I, if I call in one of the local shopping centres on the way home, trying to reach the trousers on the top shelf can be quite tricky. And I don't know if I want a 10, 12 or 14, so then I have to get someone to get them all down and then put them all up again. So that makes it quite frustrating. But the clothing itself as well, when you're sat all day, it's quite difficult to be comfortable um, especially when you're maybe not as, as slim, I think is more the thing, because then, you know, you, you have got a bit to you, you know, you want to be comfortable. And there's things like your basic wardrobe is quite uncomfortable to be sat in all day. And if you're not comfortable, you're not going to feel comfortable wearing it. And it's it's quite simple. It's quite basic. But like you said, day to day, you, you just wouldn't think of it. But if you're sat all day in a pair of jeans and if you go for a nice big meal, you probably feel like you need to undo the buttons at the end of the day as well. And it's the same for us just all day, every day. Oh, yeah. I mean, being a woman who uh, enjoys sporting her love handles, um, yeah, like certain belts I can't use because if I'm sitting down all day. And then there's kind of like, you know, the just the catches and things like that yep. will stick in. And of course, I mean, I can always get up or undo my trousers or whatever, but it must be really, really difficult. So you're finding that you end up with like really disgusting, elasticated waist stuff that you might get for the over 60s. Like what do wow. you do about it? You say that actually, I actually go to the maternity section, which gives wow. me some quite weird looks. I can remember the first time I did it. Um, I was about 16 and I was just desperate to find some jeans that looked like jeans, but I could sit in comfortably. I just, that was it. I was in there. I saw the section and I went and got them. Um, but the, the issue with them is then you've got enough material to tuck everything into them. You can pull them right <laughs> up under your armpits, which is then a bit too much. So what I thought might have been a solution actually ended up being... A bigger problem. Yeah, in and a way. And also at 16, aren't you just like super self-conscious at Honestly, that point Honestly, the anyway. looks I got. But it, that's what I thought might have been the thing I needed to do because I was fed up with just wearing leggings 
harem trousers and joggers. And I thought that might be a solution. So what made you decide to take it upon yourself to come up with a solution? It was actually a couple of years ago at a festival when I got really wet, really cold. My boyfriend went off to the car and come back with a plastic sheet, like the one you'd put down in the bit of the car for the dogs to sit on. Come back with that. And he was like, well, it's this or we've got to go back to the hotel. Wow. Because he's like, you can't, you're going to be unwell. So I kind of had a bit of a sulk and wrapped up in this sheet. And I was like, you've taken your grandma out of the care home. And he literally just looked at me and kind of nodded because he knew what I was saying. Yeah. And the whole way home, I was just like, I've had enough of this. There's situations where you can understand something not working, whether it's because you're petite and the dress is too long, so you take it up. If it's that, you know, you're in between sizes, you don't know if you want the 12 or the 14, you find a way. But the fact that day to day, you know, those sort of things weren't there, so that if I wanted to go out and about when it was wet or it was cold, I had to look ridiculous. I'd had enough at that point, so I just literally sat there the next day and come up with the idea of the waterproof jumpsuit that I later on went to create. And it's been since then, really, that has kind of put a fire in my belly, seeing how that went and the feedback that I had was kind of the the start of the, the ball running down the hill for this. So tell me how that kind of came about. What happened next? And honestly, I'm not saying this because this is who selected it, but I wanted ASOS to work with me on this jumpsuit because not only do they supply the Paralympic GB team with their kit for opening and closing ceremonies, they don't Photoshop their pictures, which is quite important to me because I've grown up not having the best skin or not being like the size six models you would see on Instagram nowadays. And I think it's important for people growing up now to see more natural bodies. Mm. Um, And ASOS were the first company to stop photoshopping. So I I had my reasons, like genuine reasons why I wanted to work with them. So when I had an email back two days later from my spiel saying, I want to make this, I want to do that, saying we'd love to do it with you. Well, it was just one of those moments where you're like, this is actually happening. And I didn't know what would happen next, whether they would kind of take my idea and roll with it, pardon the pun. But I couldn't have been more involved with the process. I went up there um, and literally I can't even say what they said to me because they said, you know, what are we doing with this? With a few expletives in there and I went, pardon? (laughs) And the head of Outwear sat there and said, you know, what what am I doing with this? I was like, are you being serious? She's like, yeah, tear it apart. Tell me what I need to do. And literally everything I said that was needed, they did. Um, And I think it was the beauty of the fact that it was, you know, there was a model stood in front of me who was completely able-bodied wearing this, Mm. but it was going to work for me too. And that was my real crucial point and what my point was with this, was that she could wear it, I could wear it, you could wear it. Um, And I think that's why it worked Um, and why it then, yeah, a year on from that point was there for you to buy on the website but then also a year on from that point and with a load of media interest in all of this nothing now has happened with other bigger supermarkets no why I do I honestly the response I had at that point like I was sat at the dinner table the night that the item went up for sale on the ASOS website and I had to mute all my notifications because wow. we sat there having dinner <laughs> and the odd ping on your phone is all right you just go on grab it in a minute but honestly, there was like four, five, six, seven growing per minute. And my grandparents were like, right, come on, what is that? And I picked up my phone and it was just, it was berserk. It was social media wow. um, responding to it all. And the next day I woke up to New York Fashion Magazine, to then Vogue and Grazia and out, like all the magazines you can think of who talk about fashion. And were you modelling this? Yes, oh. yes. So it was a first, that as well. And I think I forget that. Like I haven't even mentioned it yet to you. Like, yeah, I forget the yeah. fact that actually... I was the first in the fact that I was modelling that too. No online stores had done that before. Um, and on the website, again, it was crucial. There was me and there was 
um, the, the girl who modelled with me was amazing, really helpful. But to have a side by side, so you could see her wearing it, completely able-bodied, and me wearing it, it was was really important. But yes, yeah, so it's quite frustrating the fact that you can you can get a year on from this this big thing and actually find that nobody has any plans to do anymore. There's a proof in the pudding with the fact that Vogue writing about it. Yeah. So in a wider sense, what does inclusive fashion look like if we were to kind of say, right, it looks like this? It's, I think the look of it is getting there from the outside picture because you've got people on the runways at big fashion weeks like New York Fashion Week Mm. in wheelchairs. You've got people with prosthetic limbs. But these are the people who can wear just anything because of their physique because that's how they're built. But we're talking about, obviously, a a big number of a lot of other people, which actually lies at one billion worldwide. That's like almost the population of China, that. That's a lot of disabled people who are struggling in one way or another. So I think that's where you're not seeing it. So what does fashion look like? Nobody knows because nobody's doing it. Mm. Um, And although, yes, you know, you see a lot of these people on the runway. So the big top end fashion brands are going, oh, look, the stuff being done. When you bring it back down to day to day and bring it down to high street, no one knows what that picture looks like because nobody's doing it. We gave it a taster, like myself and Isis, I think, showed a snippet of what it should look like and how it should be reflected. Mm. But then because no one else has followed it on, um, and because I haven't yet, no one else knows what it looks like yet because it's not been done. So in terms of pressure, what is your next move? Because obviously we've got one company interested. Like, what are you going to do to change the way that the fashion industry is treating disabled people and losing out on an awful lot of money themselves? Yeah, <laughs> the money they're losing out is, is huge. I've been obviously doing the research ahead of doing my talk. Um, and businesses in general, taking it bigger than clothing for a second, lose $2 billion a month by not meeting the needs of disabled people. And high street stores lose £267 million a month by ignoring disabled people's needs. I think it's just, I had enough of waiting for clothing brands to do it. I've approached a few over the last year. Um, and the response I got from a couple initially were really positive. But then when I kind of left, it was, oh, that would go really well for our 50th anniversary. It's like, well, this isn't something to do as a token. Da-da, we've been open 50 years. Look what we're doing. It's a case of having these clothes there, this basic essential wardrobe for anybody who needs it to buy at any point. I, I don't see why that isn't something that could be done quite easily. And if so- they're not going to do it, then somebody needs to, don't they? Well, isn't that going to be you? I mean, couldn't you design it yourself, set up your own company? I'm just saying. Well, it's been in conversation. I've been working the last year with the Prince's Trust Mm. um, in Bristol. They've been really supportive. Um, Initially, it was just to kind of, I did their business enterprise course they did to try and get a better understanding of how these things work. Not only for myself in case I want to do it myself, but also to understand how businesses work. So when I approached them with pitches or ideas... I know what they'd be thinking mm-hmm. um, and how to kind of handle it, really. Um, but yeah, through that process, that's how I met with some of the companies I have. Mm. Um, and I've realised that no one's going to do it the way I can do it. So although they've got the money, they've got the machines, I don't think they've got the right reason. No, and they haven't got the it. understanding either. No, they don't. And ASOS was just an example of how a collaboration could work. And I would love to get back to the point where I've got companies knocking on my door saying, oh, we'd love to have your clothes. Um, But I I don't think that's going to happen now. 
And well, what can happen now, though, is me doing it. that big red circle, you never know what's going to happen. You get yourself <laughs> on a TEDx platform and suddenly you're a global sensation. So be careful what you wish for, Chloe. You might end up way too busy for yourself. Bring it. <laughs> I'm happy with that. <laughs> so how excited are you about the 17th of November for TEDx Bristol? I, I can't honestly still like get my head around it because it has all happened quite quickly. Um, 17 is my lucky number, so I'm hoping it's going to be an amazing day. I know it will be. And I can't wait to hear what everyone else has got in store as well. There's so much variety. I think that's the thing here, like who I talk before and who follows me and who, you know, who I go after. You don't get that very often like, on one stage. And I can't wait to be a part of that. Like two years ago, I, you know, it was one of those, oh, I'd, I'd like to put an application for that. Mm. So it's it's quite hard to believe that I actually was sat here having a conversation about me doing it because I am in, what, just over a month's time now? Yeah. God, I've got to start learning that script. I've <laughs> yes, got it, do. it's ready, but I, I need to memorise it a bit better. And are you family excited as well? Or is this kind of like another like, oh, here she goes again. She's coming out with another award, you know, because um, they must be they <laughs> must be now so proud of you. It must be almost boring. <laughs> it's hard with this one because... There's a divide in generations. So I'm not going to lie, I went into my grandparents and yeah. I had to explain it. Once I explained it, yeah, they understood it. Yeah, they're not it. on the internet, yeah. And so. once I kind of showed them a few and explained a few people who yeah. they know of who have done them, Oh yeah. they then started to understand the magnitude of this. Um, but then on the flip side of that, you've got my brother who's 16 and is glued to YouTube, who, you know, it's one of the few times I've kind of seen my brother like, no, really? Because I don't think he gets very shocked anymore. Like you said, my family kind of like, oh, what's she up to now? Yeah. But this actually, yeah, people are realising this is a whole different level. Yeah. Um, and they, for the first time, aren't listening to my material. So I've done events where I've spoke for charity things before where I, I bounce it off of them. I, I speak it to them. Um, whereas this time they've gone, we don't want to hear it. We want to hear it on the night. Yeah. I'm like, that's cool. That's fine. Um, but yeah, that's how I know. This is different because they don't want to hear it till the big day. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's how it special. should be. Yeah, absolutely. We are so excited to have you. Really excited to what you're going to say. But I'm even more excited to find out what is going to be the positive implications of what you say on that TED stage to how it's going to impact the rest of the world. Because this is the opportunity that you've got. You could actually change. I mean, you already have been, but you could really change the fashion industry just at this particular event. And everyone that goes to see it can say, I was there when a paradigm was changed. I am so excited, Chloe. I really am. I really hope you're right there. And that's that pressure I was talking about that I really like. Like you've just put it on there. So thanks for that. <laughs> but yeah, it's exactly that. Like it's not only the procedure doing this, it's knowing what could follow from this. Um, and that's huge. That's like almost 14 million in this country, but nearly 1 million, billion, sorry, worldwide. That's a lot of people that should already be having this. But yeah, it could, you know. It's on my shoulders, kind of say, but I'm glad it is um, because they're good shoulders. Yeah, I'm not giving up. <laughs> they're archery shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. So proud to have Thanks, you with Becky. us. Thanks so much to Chloe for joining us and sharing her story. You can catch her alongside 15 other inspiring speakers at TEDx Bristol 2019 on the 17th of November at Bristol Old Vic. For more information on our speakers and how to get your ticket, visit TEDxBristol.com. A huge thanks to our headline partner, Opus Talent Solutions, for making this podcast possible. You can find out more about them at opustalentsolutions.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It's free. Just tap subscribe on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed it, please tell your friends.